You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. I am coming to you from sunny London, and my guest today is Clint Margrave. Clint is a poet and novelist. His two poetry collections are called Salute the Wreckage and The Early Death of Men, and he's recently published his first novel, which is an academic satire called Lying Bastard. I think a title with uh, several different um, uh, double meanings. Welcome, Clint. And Clint is coming to us from Los Angeles. I think a good way to start this podcast would be for you to read us an excerpt from your novel so that we can get a, my listeners can get a sense of the subject and tone. So um, I asked you to read chapter two, prerequisites. Let's, uh, let's hear it. Okay, great. Chapter two, prerequisites. Faking his death was minor in comparison to the lies Berlin Saunders had been telling all his life. The first lies he had ever told were about his father, and the first people, ironically enough, he remembered telling them to were his sympathetic school teachers. One story he liked to tell was that his father died in a car accident when his mother was still pregnant with him. Eventually, as he grew older, the lies mutated, and he came up with more imaginative tales to explain his father away, from going missing in the jungles of South Vietnam to living in a witness protection program in Europe when the truth was Saunders had merely been the product of a one-night stand. And if the first lies he ever told were about his father, the biggest lies he ever told were the ones he gave his students on the first day that semester, weeks before the shooter appeared. Success in any college class is a joint contract between professor and student. By the end of this class, you will gain confidence as both a writer and thinker, you will be able to demonstrate an understanding of the ways that language and communication shape experience, construct meaning, and foster community. The readings have been carefully selected to enhance and excite your curiosities about the nature of human experience. In many ways, writing is an act of discovery, so come prepared to discover. Admittedly, he had come a bit irritable that day. The Long Beach Community College was only one of the two schools he taught part-time at each semester. It was also where he'd met Kathy. And having split up with her recently and ruining a good shirt in the process, Saunders had approached the spring term on its campus with a malevolence that made him want to bulldoze the humanities building. The room he had been given for his first class was even dodgier than usual. Paint was peeling off the walls, ceiling tiles were missing, and a dead cockroach lay on its back in the corner. Having run out of seats, students crowded the aisles, some standing, some cross-legged on the floor. The room stunk and was so hot it felt as if the heater had been on full blast all winter long, trapping the last nervous fart let go during final exams the previous semester. Saunders made his way down to the front of the class like he did every semester, only to find the chair from his desk missing. He looked around, half expecting some student to rise and give him back his seat, but none did. They all just stared at him while he set his bag down on top of his desk and slid the podium left in the corner next to it. His armpits were sweating already. He wasn't sure if it was from the classroom heat or residual from his hangover that morning. Unable to sleep the night before, he had made his way to a bar down the street from his apartment where an old friend worked and had proceeded to numb himself. Anyone know where my chair is? Saunders mumbled it, kind of joking, kind of humiliated, kind of tired. These were the first words he would speak to his students this semester, and he couldn't help but laugh at the personal irony of the question. He's off fucking your girlfriend, he told himself reluctantly. 
That's where your chair is. I'd hate to think somebody's lying to me so early in the semester, Saunders joked. The students cared even less than he did about being there. He wondered if this wasn't an act of sabotage orchestrated by Crawford himself. After all, one of the first things Crawford told him upon hiring him 12 years ago was that a good teacher never sits but always stands. And what would Crawford say about lying down? Unable to locate his chair, Saunders unbuckled his leather bag and pulled out his assortment of multicolored dry erase markers. The first thing he did each semester was write his name, class, and room number on the board and ask everybody if they were in the right place. Inevitably, somebody wouldn't be. But this time, Saunders felt out of place. Maybe he should have taken the missing chair as an omen and fled the campus. But instead, he looked one more time around the classroom where he spotted a skinny white male with a crew cut, older than most of the other students, maybe in his late 20s, hunched over, hands in front of his pocket, front pockets of his t-shirt, looking at the floor. Aha, Saunders said, addressing the class. I think I found the culprit. The students turned to look at the young man, and he looked back at them, then quickly reached for a camouflage backpack next to him and stood up. Saunders felt guilty for pulling rank and humiliating him in front of the class, especially since the young man probably hadn't realized it. He tried to make light of the situation, but his mood made everything sound bitter. The first rule of this class, ladies and gentlemen, he said, is to make sure the teacher always has a place to sit. The students' laughs seemed uncertain. They had not sized up the kind of teacher he was going to be. He liked their continuing uncertainty, as if it helped him regain control of the situation. In the meantime, the young man, embarrassed, gave Saunders back the chair. Saunders pulled out the roster in a stack of syllabi from a folder in his bag and set it on the podium. The young man, not having a seat anymore, seemed confused about where to go and crouched down against the wall next to where he once sat. Saunders felt bad, but knew better than to let down his guard on the first day of class. What's your name, he asked. After all that fuss about the chair, he had decided to stand at the podium anyway and took the paper clip off the stack of syllabi he was going to pass out. Adam, the young man said, as if surprised, Saunders asked. Adam who? Adam Rowan. He looked over the roster, running his finger down the list of last names until he found it. He finished calling roll, then distributed the syllabi in each row. Adam, he said, handing him the last syllabus. Have you ever told a lie before? Concerned, perhaps, as to whether or not a right answer existed and what the consequence of getting it wrong might be, Adam looked around the room, then then nodded. Good, Saunders said. Then do us the honor. Please read the course objectives from page one of the syllabus. Thanks so much, Clint. I have to confess that I keep wanting to call your protagonist Bernie Saunders. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Tell me something about why you chose that chose that name. Was that a deliberate association that you wanted us to have? Um. No, it was not. But (laughs) strange. I mean, I I started this novel back in two thousand eight. I hardly. I don't even know if I knew who Bernie Sanders was. Um, But of course, it took on. It's taken on a new meaning uh, in the last few years. to the point where before the novel came out, I actually had a shirt made that said Berlin Saunders 2020. <laughs> uh, but then, then of course, the election, the primary uh, had different results, so I don't know. And um, the shirt doesn't really seem very relevant anymore with the pandemic and everything else happening. But yeah, so I, I did notice that. What a shame. Yeah. Um, so I... Uh, I um, I love this novel, and partly because I have to say that although I was in, uh, although I enjoyed it, also gave me mild PTSD from my time when I was an academic. <laughs> um, I left academia in two thousand and six, but I was an academic for eleven years. Ah, uh, yes. And interestingly, before we began recording, I asked you. Um, if you were an academic, which was a silly question, of course you're an <laughs> academic, or uh, no one but a, an academic or a former academic could have written this book, I think. Um, but you said, I guess so, 
I'm a very bad one. <laughs> Can you explain? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I mean, I don't think of myself as an academic. Uh, can I explain this? Um, explain yourself, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm a bad academic because I don't necessarily follow the rules and I tend to critique. I tend to spend a lot of time critiquing academia. Um, so maybe that makes me, I'm also not, uh, you know, I'm a writing teacher, but I'm not, uh, someone who writes like an academic or uh, thankfully, you know, or, um, I don't, I don't think I teach like an academic. I don't think I teach writing like a lot of my colleagues do, or even think of writing in the same way as they do. Um, how, how do they think of writing and how do you think of writing? I think their main focus is structure and, um, teaching students basically how to get through college and how to be a good academic and which is fine. Uh, but, but I think there's a lot more to writing, a lot more meaning to writing, um, a lot more self self discovery through writing, uh, that, and a lot of creativity in writing that I, I think a lot of times gets pushed to the side, um, in the mission to teach them how to be good academics. Mm. I've always, I'm, um, in my, in my field is, was English literature and, you know, we read and studied so much absolutely gorgeous and beautiful prose that it's quite baffling to me that, um, so many of my colleagues writing, most of the writing of my, uh, of, of my, um, former colleagues and other academics I've read is so atrocious. Absolutely. This is my same experience. Uh, not only my, you know, not all my colleagues, but not only uh, some colleagues, but yeah, I mean, all the academic essays that we often read. Um, I too, I didn't, I, I majored in, I got a BA in comparative literature. Um, and then I went on in grad school, even though I ended up getting an MFA, we, we still were uh, required to take a theory class or a few theory classes. And, um, yeah, I mean, this has been my same experience uh, that academic writing is just, you know, after reading all this beautiful prose, like you said, it's just, uh, it's a very strange disconnect, at is least it, in the, at least yeah. today. I think yeah. there used to be beautiful essayists and, and critics, um, but certainly not in the era of, of postmodernism. Well, there certainly are still some beautiful writers and critics. I'll give a shout out to my former guest, uh, Andy Curran, who is a lovely stylist. But it's become, um, do you think postmodernism is to blame? Because it's it's so many articles in particular. So articles in my field in English literature are, 90% of them are are completely unreadable. And I have the sensation that it's a kind of intellectual Ponzi scheme. You're <sighs> writing your article just to sort of just, you're writing the article not to be read, but just to be published. So you have the line on your CV. So you have a better chance of getting a job, keeping a job, getting tenure, etc., which will be count, you know, your publications will be counted, will be counted up and totted up and um, and here in the UK, the funding of your, your department's funding will be dependent on the RAE, the research assessment exercise, which is measured for us basically in books and articles. I think a book is worth five articles or something. There's some equivalent. And it's for, and also for other people to read when they are doing the literature review part of the beginning of their article. So for those who don't know, many academic articles begin with a little summary of what everybody else has said on the topic to sort of show what, how your article is different. And I have the feeling that they're just there to be able to pad out the CV and the literature review. And nobody else who doesn't have to read them in order to put them in their literature review would ever voluntarily read them. 
And even those who have to, I think, are, are struggling. They're just so, it's so torturous and horrible to read. <laughs> yes. um, and I, I used to think that it was because I was too stupid to understand them, that I found it so difficult to, to parse, very frequently to parse what was actually being said. And this is other people in my field. We're not, I'm not talking about technical, I'm not talking about not being able to do maths or understand technical jargon or things that require specialist background, but just other, other essays on 18th century authors who I was familiar with. But now I think that it's, in some cases, it's on purpose. If you make it obscure enough, you can kind of hide the fact that you don't have much to say. And in some cases, it's just kind of desperation to try to put a new spin on something that has been has been tackled a gazillion times. I don't don't know what your what are your theories. I would agree with you on that. I think um, that I, I do think that maybe in the beginning there was some playfulness to it. Just to, I mean, one of the things is is that language is a slippery slope, right? So they they like to play with language a bit. Um, but I think at some point it, that's that playfulness has just disappeared and just turned into nonsense. And um, and I, I had the same experience you did at, at some point early on. I thought, well, maybe I'm just too stupid to get it. You know, I just don't I don't understand. But but luckily with age comes a certain amount of confidence to realize no, they're just full of shit, right? So so um, I, yeah. I do you know I, and I do think it's about a career. It's about a career. It's not about connecting to an audience or communicating an idea, really. Mm. Um, mm. It's about the CV quite often. Yeah, the but, publish or perish thing has got to be part of the part of the problem. Um, you've got to get an article out there rather than, um, you know, in the old days where people took t- 20 years writing their magnum opus book and it was this, you know, someone like Lionel Trilling was writing these be- these beautiful pieces of prose that you want to read even if you're not in the discipline, just for the pleasure of it. Right, and I also think another another element is, you know, the... I mean, I hate to, I don't mean to generalize just the postmodernists or post, you know, I know that that's, that's complete generalization, but their interest is not in the aesthetics of writing. Their interest is in other things. So whether it's, you know, social, political or language, but not language as an aesthetic or style. Um, so it's almost like they, they don't even value the art form. At some mm. point, they're they're more interested in deconstructing the art form than than appreciating it, um, and I think that might trickle into their own sense of of or their own writing, really. Mm. Yeah, that's very ironic and seems kind of ungrateful, <laughs> almost. <laughs> well, they love irony too. So, <laughs> um, tell me more about what. Uh, what provided was there some moment that provided the inspiration for your book all all the time I was reading it I was just remembering stories from my own time in academia um, that were also almost novel worthy um, but yeah how did you how did you first come to think about writing it back in 2008 I mean there were a few moments and I ended up you know, combining them uh you know, one of the more serious moments was the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007. Uh, so, you know, as someone who was already in the classroom, of course, I couldn't help but think of this situation occurring. Um, but somehow I have a dark sense of humor. And uh, I I think the first, first idea I had was of a, a professor playing dead on the classroom floor. But mm-hmm. I also knew it connected somehow to my feelings as a teacher at times uh, that I'm faking it in some way or that I'm not necessarily able to communicate in as honest a way as I would like to Mm. because of the institution and, you know, certain, or even, even just the 
paranoia about it. I, I mean, I don't have tenure. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm a part-time employee. I could lose my job for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so even that felt like a restriction on really delving into certain ideas or, um, you know, whether that is true or just something I imposed upon myself is an interesting question. Um, another thing that happened was my first year of teaching, I received the first and still to this day only bad evaluation uh, I've ever been given, which um, was by somebody very similar to uh, one of the antagonists in this novel, Harry Crawford. Um, so I think I vowed some kind of revenge <laughs> in writing with that <laughs> at some point. Uh, so that was another inspiration. And I also had the idea of the title, which was totally separate. I Years before I had worked at a pub and there was a guy that used to come in who we had nicknamed Lying Bastard. And I always thought, oh, that would be a great name for a novel. You know, it had nothing to do with this guy. I was not an academic or anything. And I had this idea that I wanted to write about somebody who was a bastard, you know, and just, you know, we live in an age in which People expect characters to be good and wholesome and always, you know, do the right thing or whatever. And and I I wanted to do the opposite of that. I wanted to pick someone or create someone who was just kind of a bastard and just maybe not a good, maybe not, maybe not an evil person, but not, not, not a good, wholesome person either. An anti-hero of sorts. I find him quite lovable. Um, And, uh, relatable i think is the correct is the right is the right term there that i love the title because it it has so many resonances he's lie he's he's literally lying mm-hmm. so the narrator this is at the very beginning of the book so that i'm not going to give any i'm going to try to avoid giving any spoilers it's a very it's a short book and it's a it's quite a page turner so if you haven't read it please go out and get it and read it it's available on Amazon and on Kindle. But anyway, he's. it begins with him. He has been shot and he's lying on the floor. Well, he's he's been shot, but the, the bullet has missed and he's playing dead. And he's lying there on the floor of his classroom. So he's literally lying supine. And then also there is this ongoing theme of mendacity throughout the book. And he is um, a literal bastard, um, as as we just heard in that chapter. One of the things that he lies about is his parentage, because his his um, his father was his mother's one night stand lover. So he's he's literally and metaphorically a bastard, and he's also lying in both senses of the word. Yeah, sorry, that wasn't a question, was it? <laughs> Um, tell me about was were there any were there any things that you experienced in real life that or that you have other people have experienced that 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 ins- provided inspiration for the novel? I mean, you know, even though I don't feel that this novel is autobiographical in any sense, mm-hmm. except for the fact that you know I do work as an adjunct professor, but um, I mean. Just, there's a lot of autobiographical elements that I use, of course. Um, I didn't use my own familial history or anything like that. Um, sure. I, I didn't assume you did, but it's impossible for it not to have some kind of autobiographical. Yeah. Well, at least it's the milieu, which is just so familiar to me. One other experience that was autobiographical, I think that... Um, would would play into the novel was I had a number of students coming back from Iraq um, around this time and, you know, a lot of vets and they were always really smart and, you know, some of the smartest, more engaged students in the class. Um, They had been through a lot. And uh, so I I think that was an inspiration too. And uh, to go back to the idea of uh, creating this character who's a bastard. I will admit that I began that way. I don't know if I succeeded in making him a complete bastard. Uh, that he did I liked become, him. <laughs> yeah, he did become you know more likable in some sense. Uh, 
so I don't know how successful I was, but it, it was a starting point with that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there is no doubt a lot of me in there that, you know, I, I probably couldn't deny. Um, but also I do feel like, I do feel he's separate though, for sure. And in, in a different person in that way. It's not a confessional novel in any sense. No, no, it's, it's really not. I have to say that I, um, most first novels that, that, uh, most first novels that especially first novels written by poets, um, are absolutely dreadful because they're <laughs> self-indulgent maudlin codswallop um, <laughs> these kind of confessional novels so I think there is something quite special about the, a sen- the, the sensibility of somebody whose first novel is a satire well I should say this is my first published novel mm. uh, ah. so maybe I got those self-indulgent novels out of the way first <laughs> and, spared, and spared the world uh I think this was the third novel I wrote. Um, two of them I wrote at a very young, you know, in my twenties, um, for the most part. So I, I, the second one carried into my thirties, but this this I began in my mid thirties. So I, I maybe I had got that all out of my system before then. Although I still worried this was still self indulgent, but I'm glad to hear that uh, you have a different perception. No, I thought it was a very dry, sort of sparse and kind of. There's there's a very unsentimental um, tone to this novel. It's not. I mean, um, I keep saying that I find your protagonist very likable, but he's not portrayed in this. In this, he's not written with this kind of loving, loving pen. Um, you know, you're not George Eliot writing Dorothea Brooke um, <laughs> when you describe him. There's um, the novel is written in quite a detached. Um, quite in a detached narratorial manner, I would yes. say. You know, I agree with that, but I'm not sure entirely how conscious I was of it mm-hmm. while doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I just heard the voice. I followed his voice. And, and, you know, once it started, I suppose there was this level of detachment there. Um, mm. Well, you play a lot, you have a lot of puns in the novel and you, play a lot with language in a very kind of pleasing way. I mean, maybe that is, maybe that is something that you could, could have alerted me to the fact that you were a poet before writing this. Yes, I do like to have, I I had a lot of fun with parts of writing this novel. I mean, a a lot of other parts were long and difficult, but, um, you know, I, I would make myself laugh at times or I just, Somehow the the voice of this character, I was able to just follow through and he just kind of took over. Uh, I didn't have to battle to find his voice. It was just, it was just, it just appeared. And, um, you know, obviously part of it probably what all appeared for me somewhere, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I didn't have to struggle every day when I'd write it. I wouldn't have to struggle to find him. Mm. He would be there waiting. Mm. I was really, um, I I love the fact that the novel is explicitly um, and implicitly about mendacity, because I think it's a, I think it's, ex- it's a very st- strong vein running through academe. Um, first of all, there is, particularly in the US with 10 year review, but increasingly in here in the UK as well, we don't many academics don't have secure permanent positions anymore and are under constant review. And in the the atmosphere here in the UK is slightly different. People like to bitch and moan and complain um, in staff meetings and things. But when I taught in the US, there was this enforced cheeriness and yeah. this sense of being constantly on your best behavior. You know, you could, just in case anybody took something the wrong way and then that might affect your tenure of you. Oh, yes. I think that's definitely true. It's interesting to hear, you know, you're able to compare with two different countries. And um, yes, that that seems exactly right. Um, This sort of fake positivity, uh, everything has to, you know, this 
there's also this sort of pretend that it's only about the students when it's not. It's really about people's careers and um, things like that, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, it's also this extraordinarily kind of um, hierarchical culture. Um, more In the States, that is more obvious um, because in the States, I think that's reflected also in how academics um, socialize with each other. In the UK, much less so because people argue with each other at staff meetings. And everybody mm-hmm. gets drunk together and things like that. But it's still there underpinning it all, which is this, you know, on the one hand, there are... Um, on the one hand, there are people with tenure who basically um, have a secure job for life, at least certainly still in the U- in the U.S. And some of whom at the college where I was was, for example, lived in the most glorious um, houses <laughs> and really led a very uh, middle class uh, lifestyle. Um, and then there's this kind of army of adjuncts. And I have I I read some articles. Uh, I edited some articles for Ario about this, and I have seen the stats on the proportion of adjuncts that are on food stamps. Um, so that's that's just a really extraordinary, and it, it's an extraordinarily exploitative system. Also, even even for the people who are tenured, because when you if you write an academic book, for example, and you sell it to a press. You get almost nothing back in royalties. Your people are editing journals without being remunerated. They're writing stuff in their free time. And, and you know, even we who are a tiny little paper and funded completely by our Patreon patrons, even we pay writers something, right. <laughs> what, we, what we're able to pay them. So it's, it's, I feel that there are so many elephants in that room. It's a it's a fucking menagerie in there. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. Um, and you know, you end up the system pegs the adjuncts against the full timers or tenure track. I mean, yes, some of them have very nice lives and um, drink fine wine, and uh, which I don't have any problem with that. Um, no, that's great. But they, go, but they call themselves Marxists and they live on the backs of the system. And so I mean, I'm not saying they're intentionally doing it, uh, mm, mm. but the system has created this difference. And, yeah, it's uh, not. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I keep interrupting you. Um, go, go ahead. No, no, no. I, that, that, that was probably it. Yeah, but, it's, it's kind of, it's nobody's individual fault, but there's an extreme absurdity to it. Yeah, I think the absurdity in it lies in that sort of um, the way that the performance they give, the performance they give about caring about justice and all of these. You know, if they just were into their scholarship, maybe it wouldn't be wouldn't seem so hypocritical. But I think mm-hmm. because a lot of their scholarship today revolves around social justice or Marxism or things like that, that. They, it ends up looking really bad and hypocritical. Mm, mm, yeah. You have you highlight that in the book very uh, nicely with a contrast between the head of department, Harry Saunders, um, no, Harry Saunders, what is his name? Crawford. Harry Crawford. And the, um, you call him a teacher's teacher's pet, which I, <laughs> which I loved. Um, the other adjunct who is a desperate brown noser trying to get, um, trying to, trying to get this writing across the curriculum job. Um, whack, this whack job. yeah, this whack job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you have, you have wonderful puns in that book. Um, and, uh, He's um, and he's working at Starbucks in his spare time, which he's kind of trying to keep on the down low. And it's just, um, yeah, that it's it's fabulous. Those I, I the the character portrayals in this novel are very economically and and beautifully done. Well, thank you so much. 
I have no, you know, while I'm doing it, I have no idea how it will be received. So that's very nice to hear. Well, I mean, I don't know if I actually entirely enjoyed it because, as I said, I did it did give me some PTSD. <laughs> this was something I never thought would happen, you know, when I thought of my audience who might enjoy it. <laughs> I yeah. guess I should have known. <laughs> yeah. Um, you thought maybe Iraq veterans would get PTSD reading it, but no. <laughs> well, I, yeah, the academics for sure. <laughs> what was... Um, how do you find writing poetry versus writing novels? Um, in a way, I mean, it's it's way different in a way. Although my poetry tends to be very narrative and uh, not too flowery, not you know, none of not too wordy. So I, my style is similar, I think, but. I kind of like when you work on a big project, like a novel, at least you can get up every day and have a routine or a poem. I try to have routines writing poems, but they just don't work that way. In some ways you do have to wait for them to arrive. I try to, you know, I do writing every day, but it doesn't always turn into poetry. Um, but to me, I've been thinking about that and, I like all all the different forms. So I like essay writing, I like poetry writing and fiction writing. And then I hate all of them at once too. So uh, it's nice to switch. It's nice to, when I'm sick of poetry, okay, I'm going to work on some fiction or I'm going to write an essay um, so I don't burn myself out on a particular medium. I'm going to read one of your poems um, before I ask you in what ways you love and hate <laughs> those various genres. Um, do you mind if I read it? Sure, I would fun? love it. So this one is called My Therapist Says I Should Date Myself. So I ask myself out on a Friday night, just as friends, I say. We meet at a bar by my place. Everything goes smoothly. We hit it off, laugh hysterically, until others begin to notice, and I realize we are too drunk. I've got an idea, I say, let's take a walk. Down by the beach, there's a full moon, couples pass on bicycles. So what happened in your last relationship, I ask, staring into the darkness beyond the shore? I'd rather not talk about it. Probably still raw, I say, though not like I'm person X. Later, back at the house, I offer myself a cigarette. No thanks, I'm trying to quit. Just one? Oh, all right. We climb into bed, and in the morning, wake up hungover, full of remorse. When will I see you again, I ask, before downing a glass of water. I hate commitments. That's okay, I tell myself, then unlock the front door. I'm not looking for anything serious. So I, I, I'm obviously not going to do a close reading of your poem because you would hate that, <laughs> I imagine. But um, I think that um, the poems I've read of yours, I've noticed that there is this kind of lightness of surface touch, but the topics that are the topics you're dealing with are are, are quite dark. Um, so there, there is certainly a connection to the the way your approach to novel writing in that. Yeah, I would agree. Um, for some reason, you know, a lot of people don't think of poetry. They don't think poetry can be humorous. Um, they think it has to be serious. But I think there can be an element of humor in poetry. And for me, it's always a dark element. Um, I guess I deal with dark things in life uh, with humor, which maybe maybe the best way at times. When I heard you read that, my first thought was, "Oh, to go to a bar. Imagine if we could go to a bar right now <laughs> instead of being stuck at home." <laughs> I, I felt triggered all of a sudden. <laughs> so you said that you both love and hate um, novels. Um, not novels, but writing, writing, <laughs> writing novels. Yeah, yeah. I love novels. 
I love poetry, but uh, writing, you know, writing's difficult as anyone who writes knows. Um, this book took me a long time. It wasn't necessarily because I was struggling to write it so much, but I, you know, I put it down and I would go to poetry. And, and in the meantime, I put out two poetry books. And uh, for some reason, poetry, one thing about poetry is you can complete a poem you can get it out in the world. Um, but a novel you could take years on and no one wants to publish it or read it, you know, and you just don't know. You don't know, you know, you put on all this time into something. But luckily, uh, you know, I had put this book down a few times. Uh, actually, I had, you know, it was completed. I had completed a few drafts and well revised uh, and then I just thought it was never going to see the light of day and it would just stay in my files. And so I, and, and it was kind of a last ditch effort uh, when I finally did send it out one more time. Uh, but, you know, that can f talk about PTSD. I mean, that can feel a bit overwhelming. I, I had sworn I would never write another novel after this, <laughs> but, you know, we'll see now. Maybe, maybe I will. I have some ideas, but, um, well, maybe you should, if this is successful, you should try to publish your earlier novels. Oh, no way. <laughs> Nobody wants to read those, including me. So um, I'm, I'm, like, I'm doing okay like, now. Why, why would I want to blow that? <laughs> um, I also have short stories in a drawer <laughs> yeah. collection. I think everybody, everybody has that kind of st the stepchild. Um, yeah. And your Cinderella has gone to the ball now. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, the the problem is just like with any, it's, you know, you may write one novel or three novels for that f matter. And every time it's like a whole new experience. You know, you know, some things, you know, some things that might work and, and maybe they things that don't, but uh, it's always a new discovery. And, and that's true of poetry too, I think. Tell me about your process writing poetry. You know, it's interesting because in many ways I've, oh, I should add, maybe this is my fourth novel because I wrote one when I was 10 years old. Uh, so fiction has always been something that I uh, lean towards more than poetry. And, um, but somewhere in my, I don't know, late teens, early twenties, I started taking poetry more serious and, um, uh, I think even when I was 21, 22, I published a little chapbook of poems. and uh, But I still approach it, I still approach it like a fiction writer. So I, I briefly mentioned before that I, I like to have a routine. Um, so with poetry, because I can't get up every day and write a poem, partly because I usually don't have time. Uh, I get up, you know, five in the morning before I head off to work uh, and try to write for 30 minutes. You know, and it's not enough time to, I mean, maybe you can write a, a bad draft of a poem in that time. But um, so what I try to do is I free write a couple pages about whatever, you know, so I just try to generate ideas. And much later on, when I have more time, I'll go back. And often I, it's just a sculpting process. So I'll, I'll find the poem in that free write. And then, of course, I rewrite that. But um so I don't think a lot of poets function in the same way. I mean, maybe, maybe I'd be a better poet if I didn't, but if I did it differently, but um, yeah, for me, that's, that's worked. It, it, it's a way to keep a routine because with poetry, at least with a novel, you have an idea you can work on for years. Every time you write a poem, you have to come up with a new idea. So every day, you know, if, if you want to work on something, uh, there's some new idea to explore, which can be really hard. Uh, to mm. find so mm. and who do you have role models um as do you have do you have favorite poets uh, well obviously you must have favorite poets but who is your favorite poet and is that is that poet also a kind of influence for you or are those two things separate i would say i mean i have a number of poets of course that I like um I don't know if I'd say I have a, it would be hard to pinpoint a favorite favorite poet but um a lot of the poetry I like 
was very uh, is very narrative uh, narrative based poetry and, and often humorous. Um, people like Tony Hoagland, American writers like Tony Hoagland, uh, even uh, Charles Bukowski. Um, but I also like a lot of uh, Polish writers, Polish poets, uh, or Eastern European poets in general, because they have a simplicity to the language quite often and a sense of the absurd that I don't always find in American poetry these days. Um, so people like Adam Zagajewski, uh, Polish poet, um, he's, he's been in, uh, Charles Simic is, you know, he's American, but, uh, his background is Serbian. And he, he also has been a big influence, I think for his simplicity and sort of sense of the absurd. Mm. You wrote a fantastic, um, article for us called, um, it, I think it's called forgiving Charles Simic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot. I didn't even think about that when I just said that. Um, explain for the benefit of my readers, <sighs> what there is to forgive and, oh, um, I just set myself up. Didn't I? <laughs> well, when was it in 2015 after the, um, Charlie Hebdo attacks? Pen yes, was, he... was, I'm sorry. Yes, and he won a pro- he just won a prize. Um, Charles had Sar- Charles Simich. Yes, or was think. he? He might have even been the poet laureate at the time. He was an American poet laureate for a while. Um, but the pen pen was going to give an award to um, the editors of Charlie Hebdo, the survivors, and a lot of. American writers, not all, I mean, certainly not all American writers, but there were some American writers who were against this idea and they passed around a petition and they refused to attend the event. And Charles Simich was one of them. And, um, I didn't like that because I, I was a supporter of, you know, I mean, artists, cartoonists, no matter how, who they are, should not be gunned down on, you know, in an office in Paris and, and we should stand behind this and support them. Uh, and many writers did, of course, Salman Rushdie and, and many others rushed, rushed to support, you know, some people, they had been scheduled to be presenters and they stepped down and other writers took their place. But um, yeah, I was disappointed to see Charles Simich's name on that list. Uh, most of the other writers I was already not very interested in, but uh yeah, I was a little sad about that. But in time, I guess with my article for Ario, um, you know, that was his opinion. That was, he, you know, he stood by his opinion fair enough, even if I just didn't agree with it. Mm. You say in the article, you said, I was outraged. My relationship with Simic was over. How could he do this to me? How could he do this to us? to any artist, writer, journalist, cartoonist who took a chance by being provocative? How could he protest a courage award for people who were murdered for drawing a cartoon? We had to defend artists against violent intimidation, full stop. But then you say, um, I'm forgiving Charles Simich, though I still think he is wrong, but I'm tired of outrage. I'm tired of ca- cancel culture. I'm tired of erasure. I'm tired of this era of punishing people we don't agree with. I'm tired of this trend of conflating the art with the artist. So I thought um, it was a lovely, uh, it's a lovely little, um, little essay. Um, Thank you. And um, yeah, it was a a nice kind of ironic turnaround. I remember also because Michael Cunningham, who who is one of my favorite contemporary novelists, was Mm -hmm. also one of the signatures condemning Penn. Um, and I haven't forgiven him for that. I still haven't forgiven the people who didn't stand up for Salman Rushdie. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, I know. I mean, you know, I, you know, me. <laughs> I don't know how much I really have either. Um, but I suppose, I, I suppose that essay was, it was more to me, you know, like I, I not forgiving him, but not necessarily connecting the art with the artists, because mm-hmm. if I'm going to defend writers who I like just based on their art and not, um, then I would have to give up a few people like, uh, Louis Ferdinand Celine, you know, who turned into a Nazi, you know? So, um, if, if I have to accept 
you know, if I have to accept their art because I like it, because I think there's value in it, even if I don't, if, even if I think the person is flawed and all people are flawed, of course, they don't all become Nazis, of course, but um, nonetheless, you know, then, then how can I, then I have to extend that, I guess, to, to people I, you know, would, would, um, in the contemporary times, I, I, sorry, I'm getting tongue tied now. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I shouldn't hold that against him. So I asked you whether you had favorite poets and whether you had, whether any of those poets you would consider to be an influence or, or if those are two separate things for you. Uh, oh, so the difference between the poets that I would like and that are in influence. Yes. Is there, is there a distinction there between the poets that you most like and the poets you feel have been an influence on you? There, I suppose so, but I tend to like, I tend to write in the way that I tend to write for somebody like me, maybe who might enjoy a certain style. So I think influence is something that really happens the most at a younger age. So some of the writers like Bukowski and, um, and even Charles Simich, I was reading Charles Simich at a very, you know, my early twenties. And I think he was an influence. I think they were both influences. Um, yeah, no, I, I would say most of the writers I like are still writers that could influence me. Even Adam Zagajewski was somebody who I didn't start reading until a few years ago. And uh, I think he influenced some of my work as I, as I was doing it. Have you read a lot of other um, academic satires? And is there a relationship there? So I'm thinking of things like um, Lucky Jim and David Lodge's novel Small World, which is one of my personal favorites. Um, and, um, oh goodness, what is that one with a goose on the cover? Um, oh, is that Straight Man? Straight Man, yes. I just, yeah, I read Straight Man only recently, only after I got. Uh, I found out my novel was going to be, I didn't want to read it before for that silly reason. I just didn't want to be influenced. Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe I had started it a few years ago and just never finished, but I did. I think I read it last summer. Uh, I have not read Lucky Jim. I've always wanted to read Lucky Jim. Uh, and I have another book by David Lodge called Therapy, which I haven't read. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, I've also, there's another book called, uh, Stoner, mm -hmm. which, which is an academic, it's not an academic satire though, I should mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I can't think of the names now, but there have been others, other satires that I didn't, I didn't set out with the intention of, you know, I know the academic novel is like a, it's a thing, right? It's a, it's mm -hmm. a type of novel. I didn't think of that when I started writing this, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly that's where I ended. That's interesting. What what were you thinking of, if you were thinking of anything when when you began? I think it was just through the character. I mean, I I, I guess I guess I wasn't thinking of being part of that genre. It's not that mm -hmm. I wasn't mm -hmm. thinking of of satirizing academia. I, I certainly was. I just didn't think of it as a, a type of genre. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't think, oh, well, there's all these academic satirical novels. Um, and I want to be part of that or anything like that. I just, just sort of, I think I felt something, I had some things to say and, uh, I, I needed to explore them and get them out. And I didn't, I guess I didn't think it would be part of a particular genre of novels. Mm. What was it that you wanted to say? <laughs> Oh, now I set myself up for that one. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this, I did not intend to be polemical or uh, I think part of it was to explore, you know, explore what I even thought, you know, I knew something felt off in my academic life. I knew something felt off even as a teacher that I felt a little bit restricted. I loved my students and still do. Um, but there was something about the institution uh, that was just gnawing at me. And I wanted to explore this. Um, but also, I didn't know exactly. I mean, I, 
I've never written an outline in my life. Um, I knew how to begin the novel. I also kind of knew how it might end. I just didn't know how to get there. You know, it's like uh, Flaubert saying, uh, Emma has to go to the ball, but he just doesn't know how to get her there yet. Right. So it was, it was a process of discovery, how to get to that ending. Um, and along the way, a lot of, a lot of different things happened that I never, I never outlined anyway, you know, at some point I, I thought of them and planned them in some way, but, uh, I just kind of followed the character. I knew, I knew I wanted him to get into a situation, you know, uh, with a student or whatever. Uh, I wanted him to be someone to recruit him for something. Um, but I didn't know anything else about it yet. You know, when I began. That's also a kind of classic structure, the hapless protagonist who is in, who gets into something that he's unable to handle, who's in over his head. And there's a little bit of that sense in the novel, but I will just say that the ending is absolutely pitch perfect. I loved it. Um, but let's not reveal what, what happens, of course. <laughs> yes. Thank you. But yeah, what um, in retrospect, it felt obvious to me. I was like, I should have seen that coming. But of course, I didn't see it coming. It had this lovely, um, you know, there are two, uh, two kinds of surprises. There's the sort of um, the, ah, surprise, and the kind of what the fuck surprise. <laughs> and this was the, ah, <laughs> this was the, ah, style of surprise. The good, so the good kind. Yes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Is there anything that I haven't given you a chance to talk about that you would you would like to talk about or add? Um, I mean, another thing I wanted to, again, like I said, I didn't want to be polemical or anything, but another thing I wanted to explore in the novel was something that I, you know, honestly, I didn't even realize it was happening in the same, you know, I wrote, like I said, I wrote this, or began it in 2008 and I worked on it really I'd finished a draft of it by uh I think 2013 and then revised it again 2015 and then in 2016 uh Trump got elected <laughs> and I realized that there was there was some something still there uh I don't know I was worried oh the novel's going to be outdated everything's changed but but then I realized I was trying to touch on something maybe in the book, something about American society, something that was bubbling up under, under uh, American society through the, through the Obama years. And I mean, really this novel begins, George Bush is uh, still president, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how, how you saw any reflection of American society in there. Uh, Oh yeah. Well, this sense that academia is this kind of, um, little fragile little fortress, a fortress with walls made of eggshells. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, this kind of little fortress of of um, not even liberalism, but specifically kind of social justice leftist thought, um, which is so unpopular with the general public. Uh, in this, amid this kind of country which is um on this sort of journey in the opposite direction politically yeah yeah i mean it was i i guess it was you know i mean what we call the what we call woke nowadays um mm. you know what we really started using that term a few years ago and it really you know came to a to a head over the last few years um but i think as you probably would know too it began in academia Mm, and mm. and I think this novel was already I was attempting to explore this without sort of being able to articulate it myself and, and mm. call it a thing like woke or you know whatever we use today for this or outrage culture. But I was seeing the the beginnings of this, you know, in, in the universities. Um so maybe I mean maybe there's an element of me that certainly wanted to explore that, but I just couldn't quite articulate it in the way that everyone has done since, you know. Mm. Well, novels, good novels always look for the point of tension, um, whether it within the character or within the situation. 
the the kind of they look for those gnarly contradictions that you can't completely that you you can't resolve um those those kind of moments of ambiguity that's what that's what good writing does at least for me that's a large part of what a lot of good writing does maybe not all sure Sure. And I never set out to write a political novel either. So I don't know. I mean, I know there might be political elements in this, but um, I knew I didn't, you know, I, in fact, I worried about it. I worried, is it too political? Does it seem, you know, too political? I mean, there's certainly elements of that, but I, I never intended it uh, at least to not present, you know, one particular political viewpoint or anything like that. Mm, mm. No. Um, yeah. I, I, I didn't find it polemical at all. I absolutely loved, uh, at one point you talk about the, uh, I want to quote a, um, a brief passage, let me find it. Sorry, this is from chapter eight, Life, Liberty in the Pursuit of Copy Credits. On the second day of the spring semester, the English department faculty had been required to conduct what was called a writing diagnostic with all the students in their composition courses designed to check for any signs and symptoms of deficiency in a student's writing. Saunders found the medical terminology to be appropriate, since many teachers in the department already thought of their students as ill. (laughs) (laughs) After all, it was the teacher's job to interpret the results of the exam before providing them with care. In some cases, if further treatment was necessary, beyond the general practice, Teachers had to resort to the specialists in the writing lab, which the college established on campus to further assist those with the severest conditions. What the terminology amounted to ultimately was a belief in two things. Writing was an exact science in which any deficiencies could be cured with one composition class, which of course they couldn't. And secondly, that the English department was just a great big hospital and it was no coincidence that the majority of people working for it were called doctors. If Saunders followed that metaphor, then his students this semester were about to be victims of malpractice. He had already made up his mind not to diagnose a single page of their writing samples. Um, I, I just um, love that. And the book is full of passages like that. <laughs> Thank you. This is the kind of stuff that was a lot of fun to write. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I imagine I, I'm a nerd. I can, I love puns and things like that. So I have a lot of fun with that. Well, thank you so much for, for writing a, such a very enjoyable novel. Sure. And thank you for inviting me to talk about it. Oh, um, I almost forgot to say that Clint is also, um, has signed up for our, our venture at Letter, which, as many of you know, I'm part of the team at Letter.wiki. And it is a public uh, forum for one-on-one cor- letter correspondences. It's like a, um, a kind of cross between a virtual think tank and a coffee house and a um, podcast in written form. And uh, So please go and check out Clint's profile and... You don't have to reply, Clint, if you hate the letter, but write to him. Yeah. <laughs> and I will I will link to that in the in the show notes also. And have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO A. R E O A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, 
By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.